In this fourth episode of Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on Tuesday, the 1st of March, 2022, Senior Fellows Paul Taylor and Chris Kremidis-Courtney are joined by guest speaker Merla Megra. Merla is Senior Cybersecurity Expert at Estonia's eGovernance Academy, a non-profit that helps governments go digital. Former Director of the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence in Tallinn, and member of the executive board of the Cyber Peace Institute in Geneva. The war in Ukraine is intensifying the human suffering too. What more can Europe do to support the Ukrainian army and population next to military hardware and humanitarian aid? Could we, for example, help Ukraine beef up its offensive cyber capabilities and defenses to thwart the Russian war machine? And how can you in how can we in Europe protect our critical infrastructure from being hacked? We will discuss hybrid warfare today. We've heard a lot about cyber aspects of this conflict so far and about hacking groups like Anonymous joining the fray. What kind of war is happening in cyberspace right now? Merla, if I can direct that question to you. Thank you, and really glad to be here. I think cyber activity, in fact, has played remarkably little part in the war so far, but that may, of course, change. And all of us, and particularly the West, is right to remain on a higher alert. Now, uh, indeed, we have seen a lot of uh, attacks, like compromising Russian news sites, uh, infrastructure, government websites, as well as DDoS is lately. And these are um, likely um, to have, um, um, uh, uh, these are good for the morale stories, but let's face it, they are not likely to have a massive difference and uh, unlikely to have really a strategic military impact. But that's of course not to say that they don't matter uh, they serve the broader influence campaign, even if this serves as a broader influence campaign, even if they uh, don't mostly matter militarily. Um, however, this uh, war in Ukraine um, and Russian aggression has raised questions of the role of cyber in warfare and and uh, when, when, when looking at that, it's important to distinguish between the tactical level cyber uh, offensive cyber operations and the strategic level offensive cyber operations. Um, considering the origin of most Russian Ukrainian hardware, Russia should be able to use tactical cyber alongside or directly as part of their military warfare platforms. Um, uh, considering that the invasion was extensively planned it would have helped them to preposition some strategic presence-based operations. And why we are not seeing it is not clear. Maybe the strategic uh, offensive cyber operations were not prioritized, which is probably a miscalculation from the side of the Russian Federation. Maybe they were detected by Ukrainians, which is error at the operational level from the side of the Russians, or maybe their effects failed and undelivered, which is about operational errors. Yet again, it's important to understand that uh, we may not see everything uh, from the open source intelligence. Given that Russian officials have indicated they will retaliate against Western sanctions, 
What kinds of cyber threats can Europe and the West expect to see now, Merla? Well, I think indications of that were given by President Joe Biden when he warned on the second day of the war uh, on the 25th of February that if Russia launches cyber attacks on American companies and critical infrastructure as part of its hybrid war campaign, the U.S. has to be prepared to respond. Uh, Biden didn't elaborate of what that response may be, but it's clear, it has been clear that the uh, U.S. administration and uh, alongside with the um, cybersecurity centers all around in the West, um, most visibly in the U.K., but also here in the Baltics, um, all, all these um, centers, national certs, have stepped up their campaign to implement a sort of shields up effort to protect key parts of critical infrastructure such as pipelines, banks, commercial avi aviation and hospitals, because we all know that potential Russian cyber attacks linked to this invasion of Ukraine could have a spillover effect. And no one really knows how potential escalation in cyber could look like. So we have to be prepared and being on heightened alert is important. Thank you. I'd like to bring Chris in now um, for my next question. Uh, it seems that Russian uh, advance into Ukraine is not going as planned. Um, what can you tell us about the developments on the ground right now, Chris? Thank you. Good morning. Um, I think what we've seen over the last several days has been a bit um, surprising in some, to some degree, uh, because we all expected sort of Russia to come in with, uh, with a very strong force and sort of seize more terrain. Um, and what we're seeing is obviously, as we've all heard, that um, the Russians are a bit frustrated that their advance has not gone as planned. I think, in, especially taking what Merla just told us about the cyber efforts so far, I, I get the impression that they didn't think it would be this hard and that maybe the Zelensky government would collapse. Uh, and we're seeing that's not the case. So what we have right now is the Russian military in, in, in Ukraine is on what we call an operational pause uh, where they're re, uh, you know, gathering forces uh, reloading logistics, uh, fuel, ammunition, those sorts of things. Uh, the Russian military is, is notoriously bad at logistics. Um, they, they don't have enough sufficient fuel trucks and, and am ammunition resupply capabilities to sort of keep a force moving. So every four or five days, you're going to see them stop, take an operational pause. Now, they'll still you know, send a lot of rockets and artillery forward, but about every four or five days, you're going to see them stop to do this. And, and the, the tougher the fight gets, those pauses will come. So it doesn't necessarily mean that um, they've been stopped and that's it. It means this is an operational pause and now here it comes. I think the next few days are going to be um, very critical. And I think the, the one thing that I'm really looking for <clears throat> in this situation is that, you know, Russian operations in and around the capital in Kiev remain limited because of logistics. So they're reloading there. Uh, but I'm a bit concerned about what appears to be a possible Russian and Belarusian uh, incursion to the west of Kiev to sort of encircle the city. Now, the purpose there would be obviously to uh, unhinge the Ukrainian defenses around the capital, but more importantly, to cut off the supply line of aid that's coming from Europe. So any, you know, the, all these, we're hearing about all these weapons donations and all these equipment donations happening, but if there's no way to get them sort of inside the inside of the capital region or inside of where Ukrainian forces are, then it's all for naught. 
I think the other thing that's a bit surprising so far is, um, you know, it's not surprising the remarkable resistance of the Ukrainian military, their effective use of anti-tank weapons. It's quite muddy there right now. So a lot of the Russian forces are having to stay on the roads where they're easier to pick off. But we're also seeing is um, most of the Russian military are one-year conscripts. They're poorly trained. They're not really good at driving these vehicles. And so you're seeing a lot of them sort of going off the roads into ditches and they can't get out. So you know, every one of those counts as um, something is taken out of action, especially if they get stuck in the mud like that. But the one thing that is surprising is that the Russian forces still have not achieved their superiority. I mean, we're five days in and there's still a, a Ukrainian air force that's, that's out flying that is, um, you know, taking actions against Russian air force, against uh, Russian ground forces. We've seen very effective use of the uh, Turkish-made drones uh, against columns of, of Russian troops advancing on Kyiv and elsewhere. But I think the other thing I'm really looking for right now is that um, I think in the coming days that the government in Kyiv is gonna face a very tough decision. And that is there with the, and, and we look to the east in the Donbass, you look at north of the Donbass, the advance on Kharkiv, terrible, uh, just terrible uh, use right now today of thermobaric weapons and other weapons in that region to really, um, the Russians to really pound their way into the city and try to link up with the force coming north from Crimea. So this, this you have Russian forces coming from the north toward Kharkiv, you have Russian forces in the south in the Crimea region. And at a certain point, Kyiv has a decision to make, do they withdraw their forces uh, to prevent them from being surrounded by the Russians and sort of cut off. And so I think what the Russians are looking for is isolate Kyiv, isolate a Ukrainian force in the east, and then slowly reduce them. So I think those are things I'm looking for uh, at this point. Um, so back to you, Tracy. Thank you, Chris, for that um, summary. Um, so in, in terms of um, what is new and different about this conflict compared to the past ones, are we seeing anything new um, that we should be concerned about? Maybe you wanna take that question, Chris? Certainly. Um, it, well, yeah, so what's new? First, what's old is what's old is the way the uh, Russian military operates conventionally. Uh, you know, they, their, their approach is to sort of throw numbers forward. Uh, they don't start with the air the way the Americans do, uh, very much an artillery army. So that's, that's not new. What I do think is new is sort of the global response. You know, I've always said that hybrid threats are a, the weaponization of globalization. And what we're seeing now is the, the uh, global citizens being engaged in this conflict in a way that we haven't seen before. So, you know, what we're, what I've been watching and witnessing is sort of a global whole society response. So even prior to the invasion, uh, we were seeing disinformation first responders. Now, this is something we talked about and identified in our tabletop exercise, Friends of Europe, last year. And we're seeing it happening right now. We have disinformation first responders, individual actors who have the technical capabilities to take Russian videos or disinformation and debunk them incredibly fast and incredibly fast and put them out on social media. So, uh, you know, and governments are notoriously slow. So if a government actor was trying this, there would be a whole sort of approval process and coordination meeting. Individual actors don't have that. They just sort of go. So in the information sphere, we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing intelligence collection and dissemination via, via open source means on Twitter and elsewhere. This is very much an open source war. Uh, and, you know, we have a remarkable level of awareness on the ground. Again, being an open source war means it requires a, a significant amount of debunking of possible disinformation. There's a you know, the possibility for deception. But I think this is another remarkable thing that's happening. And also, 
you know, you have a lot of hacktivists uh, taking on the Russian government websites and banks. Um, you know, we're seeing anonymous announcing, you know, something new every day or anonymous taking credit. But as Merle, Merle rightly points out, it's not to the degree, we haven't seen the cyber war to the degree, you know, to any large degree yet. Um, but I think also we're seeing individual actors influencing the Russian population via cyber, uh, social media, finding ways. I mean, even now they're going in on restaurant, they're writing restaurant reviews on <laughs> Russian restaurants, giving them five stars, but telling them in the summary what's happening on the ground. So, um, but I think, again, I think these, it's an, a war where indi global individuals can be involved and it's a war where they can be involved and move much faster than, um, than governments can. Paul, you, you wanted to come in. Yeah, Chris, I was just going to ask you, I, mean, I love the idea of restaurant review wars. Uh, can, I, can I please participate in that one? Uh, first of all, eating the meals. Um, but uh, a, serious, a serious point. Um, to what extent do you think there is a kind of mutual assured destruction, some kind of mutual deterrence between the West and Russia uh, that, that explains why we haven't seen, you know, that kind of strategic cyber warfare. Both of you have made that point. Just a question. I'll leave that one to Merla. She's the real expert on cyber, so. Well, thank you for that. Um, before comment, uh, with, answering your question, Paul, I wanted to add that one of the serious developments when the Russian troops encircle Kiev and, and cut out the roads uh, to the west is of course, besides uh, the ability to, to provide Ukrainians with more arms, we risk a humanitarian cat cat catastrophe because currently already there are over 500 people, uh, refugees who have managed to le leave Ukraine and people are pouring out of Kiev and the rest of Ukraine. But we are looking at massive, massive refugees the UN has estimated up to 4 million people. So it's a question to all of us here in Europe, to what extent we are uh, able to help and support uh, in accepting these people. But first of all, when, when roads get encircled, whether humanitarian corridor is uh, in, enabled to get these people out safely, because we are already seeing in, Har in Kharkiv yesterday when intense shelling of, of civilians, of attacks on children's hospitals, kindergartens, and so on. This is beyond beyond any any reasonable sort of, uh, well, it's, it's far beyond uh, any humanitarian in, uh, international uh, law at, at times of conflict and, and at human levels, just just so tragic. Now, um, on on Paul's question of like uh, whether or how we uh, we can see the 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 sort of cyber warfare uh, playing out, I think um, both sides are cautious. Or or maybe I shouldn't speak for the Russian side because I think um, Putin has. Has 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 demonstrated that he's uh, he's he's lost any any um, sense of responsibility already, but the Western side has not, and it is very concerned about where this cyber escalation could lead us. So uh, there is caution on uh, there is very clear readiness to protect the ne uh, Western networks if Russia would uh, would extend its uh, attacks against the US, UK, or any of the um, NATO allies. 
but uh, but there is caution about um, attacking um, of 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 that of like uh, of cyber esca of escalation in cyber warfare because it could take us to very uh, serious sort of grounds where we are not clear where it could end. Thanks, Chris. I see that you would like to come in on that point. Thank you. Yes. Uh Two things. First, thank you, Merla, for mentioning the uh, idea of a humanitarian corridor. This is something that yesterday over 30 Ukrainian uh, civil society groups have asked the world to provide. And I think there are, the big question for Brussels today and this week is, you know, what can Europe do? Uh, what, you know, can Europe uh, set up a humanitarian corridor? Who would lead it? What would that look like? Uh, I think it's a very important point to bring up. Um, I think, secondly, when it comes to um, uh, the cyber war and what we can look at in the coming days. This is where we also get into the very important point of, of hybrid attribution. And that is criminal, criminal elements around the world are still conducting ransomware attacks on businesses to make money. And so we have to be careful not to take sort of any bit of hacking anywhere in the world and automatically say it's the Russians, you know, we can't, uh, or the Americans or the UK or whoever we have to be, you know, we have to be circumspect and it's important um, that we don't sort of conflate every sort of activity and attribute it to a particular actor without evidence. Thank you, Chris. Um, I want to move now to the economic sanctions. Obviously, we've seen uh, various um, countries coming out with uh, packages of um, economic sanctions. What are the impacts of these uh, sanctions and um, the EU and NATO states sending military hardware to Ukraine? Will any of this help? Paul, perhaps that's the question for you. Well, on the sanctions, I think I would say that we've seen some impacts immediately. We've seen the value of the ruble fall uh, yesterday at some stages by more than 30%. It's recovered a bit. Um, we've seen emergency measures by the Russian central bank to set, try and stabilize the currency. And that in turn has side effects because by jacking up interest rates, they're putting up the, the cost of mortgage to Russians with floating rate mortgages. And so they may it may lead to Russians not being able to pay their mortgages. You've seen Russians queuing to withdraw hard currency. You've seen uh, um, cryptocurrency being used um, in, in both, on both sides, actually. Uh, on the Russian side, you know, for people uh, who don't ha uh, have access to uh, rubles or hard currency because of difficulty in, in, in uh, uh, using ATMs and uh, getting money from their accounts and so on, and literally having to put what they can in a sock under the mattress, as it were. Um, but you've also seen uh, Ukraine, where there's also been these problems of access to cash and to uh, ATMs and so on because of uh, Russian activity. Uh, uh, you, you've seen um, also people starting to use um, um, uh, cryptocurrencies and asking and asking for donations in cryptocurrency, both on the humanitarian side and towards the war effort from the global uh, Ukrainian diaspora. Um, other impacts of the sanctions, I think, will be much more long term. You know, economic sanctions don't work overnight. Usually, uh, uh, it's true that some of the sanctions that the EU has taken, and the EU, I think, has really over has really surprised on the upside um, as it uh, in terms of how much it is managed to uh, uh, agree in a short time. I think very few people would have expected the EU to be capable of that. Um, uh, and there was a, a extensive commentary in advance of this conflict about how the EU would be incapable of it. And maybe Putin believed that, con uh, that uh, commentary himself. But um, 
undoubtedly, you know, the grounding of Russian aircraft, which can't fly over much of the world, um, the, uh, uh, the isolation, um, what's going to happen with, with, with uh, Russian exports. Uh, now, of course, that will have knock-on effects on our side. You know, the sanctions that, that uh, the EU uh, and the United States are taking against Russia may raise the price of bread. Uh, it will undoubtedly raise the, the price, and it has already raised the price of gas and gasoline. And since the, uh, electricity prices are based on, the, on the, uh, uh, the gas price in Europe, it will also therefore raise electricity prices. You know, these are mechanical effects of what we're doing. And then there are other things. We rely on Russia uh, for some uh, strategic minerals. Will we be, continue to be able to import them? Will Russia want to go on selling to them? So far, although Russia in the run-up to this conflict uh, did slow the supply of gas and slow the amount of gas it was putting into reserves in Western Europe, since there's been a mild winter, that hasn't crippled Western Europe. However, it has forced gas prices up substantially. But things are not over. Will they now turn the gas taps off? We don't know. That Would that be in their long-term interest? And then you've got to think, let's take a step back, and it's the same thing with the arms supplies. Are we looking at a short war? Are we looking at a long war? What are Russia's strategic objectives and what are our strategic objectives? Um, you know, Russia's war aims, from what we can see, are the neutralization and demilitarization of Ukraine. That seems to be what they asked for in those talks uh, that took place yesterday in Belarus. Um, the recognition of Russia's uh, sovereignty over Crimea and possibly over uh, the um, uh, rebel-held parts of Donbass or the whole of the, those two Donbass provinces of which the rebels only heard of, held a third. And then there are the unknown unknowns. Uh, is Russia going to try, as its army is currently doing on the ground, to carve a swathe of territory all the way from Donbass to uh, Odessa and beyond to link up with Transnistria in Moldova? Um, or is this just a short-term uh, occupation to bring down the Ukrainian government and engineer uh, a more favorable government? We don't know that. So um, Russian territorial uh, 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 grab, we're not sure. Regime change, we assume that they want to get rid of the people that they've branded uh, drug-addicted neo-Nazis uh, in power in, uh, in Ukraine. And yet at the same time, um, they are negotiating in, in, in Belarus with the representatives of the drug-addicted neo-Nazis that they're denouncing. So, you know, it's, there's, there's a little certain. And then, of course, there's the question, where, where, where is their demand for a sphere of influence going to end? And, what other areas might they, of territory might they be interested in. For the moment, it seems they've bitten off rather a lot. If I look very briefly at our war aims, what are the Western war aims? First of all, the West didn't want this war. So in that sense, um, we have no war aims in that sense. And we're not direct belligerents. Nevertheless, what, are, what is the, the going on in the thinking of our leaders and our military leaderships in terms of what are we trying to do? Well, we're clearly trying to deny Russia an easy victory, and we're trying to charge Russia a very high price. The question is, do we think that victory nevertheless is inevitable and it's only a question of time? So we're raising the price to Russia, and it's about punishment largely and perhaps deterrence of going further. And I think that may be uh, the true aim, but it's not one that anybody in the West is likely to admit. Um, force, 
forcing Putin to take heavy casualties in a long war, um, inciting internal resistance, uh, both within Ukraine to Russian occupation and arming resistance if we can, and, uh, and inciting internal resistance within Russia uh, in the uh, hope rather than the belief that it will uh, uh, weaken, uh, erode Putin's grip on power and that Ukraine may have been the overreach that will ultimately bring Putin down. I think that's what Western aims are. Um, you could add to that to, to prevent an extension of the conflict beyond Ukraine um, and to sustain the cohesion of the West and keep um, this, what the so-called moral high ground. Many thanks. I'd like to bring Merla in at this point. Thank you. Uh, adding to what Paul said, as someone from Estonia, I think we, and, and from the perspective of Estonia and more widely from the Baltic states and Poland, we see this conflict as a litmus test of whether and how and whether we uh, Russia is allowed to occupy and and behave as an aggressor straight states um, against states in its neighborhood. So this is really crucial to uh, to to make clear that this aggression is unacceptable and the price that the aggressor has to pay for its activities is. Uh, is unacceptable. Makes this aggression very price, very, very, um, very high priced. Summing up in cyber, I think it's important to maintain that cyber is a tool of war, but it is not a, a red button. But the more likely um, uh, cyber attacks is is like uh, hackers trying to achieve an effect, like disrupting our everyday life, uh, subversion. Uh, through subversion, espionage, and sabotage. If we were to uh, witness cyber attacks beyond um, previous sophistication against our Western uh, energy systems, financial services, or healthcare, we uh, would be. Uh, it would be glaringly obvious that this is Russia. Would Putin push these boundaries? It depends uh, what response he wants from the West, but it is clear that uh, from someone who is prepared to invade another country, from someone who is prepared to rattle the nuclear um, sword, we can rule nothing out. I'd like to bring Paul and then Chris in um, to come back on, on some of the comments that you made, Merla. Thanks, Tracy. I think, uh... Uh, one, a couple of things to think about right here, and that is, um, and I think this is important, it's, it's, it's early days. Uh, Ukrainian military has held up very well. Zelensky politically has, has shown to be the sort of metal he's made of. Uh, the West is united. Um, and we've really taken, you know, in less than a week, Putin has turned his internationally integrated economy into something approaching North Korea's level of isolation. I mean, and, you know, this week his economy is facing sort of a Armageddon in the global markets. His own market now, they're, they're afraid to open. I think now they're saying five, the 5th of March. He's also, you know, taken Sweden uh, and the Swiss from being neutral to being something, some new kind of neutral. Um, he's completely changed German defense and foreign policy in a single weekend. And I think so this is important to remember is, you know, um, you know, how much has changed, how much has really gone about. But I think also... Um, you know, looking at the Russian forces that are available to them, I think 
it is very, I think the next two weeks will tell us a lot. I, th I think it will be a very, very tough fight for Ukraine. Uh, they're fighting valiantly, but I think that the Russian numbers are, are pretty high for, you know, for their ability to uh, successfully push even farther into Ukraine. But I almost also say that the size of force the Russians have committed to this region is not big enough to occupy Ukraine. So when I think about the possibilities that, that Paul mentioned of, you know, Russia wanting to install a pro-Moscow government in Kyiv, if they take Kyiv, that's possible. Uh, coercing the government in Kyiv to sort of sign a deal uh, and then Russian forces would leave. The force they have now makes that sort of course of action possible. Um, partitioning Ukraine in some fashion, uh, and you know, leaving sort of a rump in the West that you know that the the, gov the Kyiv government could sort of place to. That's possible with this force. Uh, but another one that's possible is that Russia could just sort of um, you know wreck the def uh, defense capabilities in the economy of Ukraine and leave. You know, sort of leave them flattened. Uh, so these are sort of the four possibilities, but I think, you know, the next two weeks will be some very, we're going to see some very ugly scenes. We're going to see some, uh, you know, we're going to see uh, some very tough choices for the government in Kiev, like I said earlier about pulling the force from the east. Um, but again, early days, um, you know, it's, it's only been a few days. And let's see if we can get Paul's microphone back on. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, yes, my microphone is back up and I've got lots of things to say now. Um, so, I mean, the question I haven't answered yet that you asked earlier is, is what, what purpose uh, these, these offers of, of pledges of weapons for Ukraine serve? The answer is, in a short war, they won't get there. Uh, in a longer war, they may. Um, uh, they basically have to come in by road on land. Uh, and it's rather surprising so far that Russia has not used more of its air power to try, try to interdict that. Um, but that may actually suggest that there's actually not very much coming in. And I don't know that. Um, but I'm sure that there, there are people who need to know and do know that answer. But, you know, the other reason, obviously, is we do it for political signaling, both of signaling uh, the strength of our support for Ukraine and also signaling to our own public that we're doing everything that we can, because uh, it's been clear from demonstrations, from the little polling that's gone on and so on, that that people want us to do that, but it's also clear that our publics don't want us to actually get involved in the war. So there's been a very clear no uh, to Ukrainian requests for uh, a no-fly zone to be imposed over Ukraine, which would involve uh, Western air forces directly uh, in uh, flying against Russian forces and could lead, therefore, to an escalation to international war. Um, and on the nuclear threat, which, which uh, Merlin mentioned, I think that um, Mela is, is right to say that this, you know, this shows that sort of in, in some ways both Putin's, uh, uh, um, not desperation, but, you know, his, his frustration at the pace, at the, at the degree of resistance. Um, but also, it, it, you know, it, it shows that his willingness to escalate in, in order to win. Now, I don't think that he is seriously contemplating using a nuclear weapon. It's hard to see what, what use, useful purpose a, a nuclear weapon could, could serve in, in, in Ukraine. And if he used it against the West, well, you know, the, the, any, the nuclear weapons have not been used since the United States dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And although there's a lot of theology about how nuclear weapons might be used to preemptively escalate in order to uh, force the other side to, to back down and surrender and so on, it's hard to see how that could be done in, in Ukraine without enormous blowback in the literal sense on Russian forces and 
Russian uh, populations. Thank you very much uh, to you, Paul. Um, we're going to have to wrap up today, but before we do, um, as our guest speaker, Marla, I'd like to um, give the last word to you, um, and uh, perhaps you can give a sum up of, of what we can expect going forward on, on the cybersecurity side. Well, as I said, we, we shouldn't rule anything out, but it's, uh, it's what's visible from here is that cyber is just one tool in the toolbox of, of the military warfare. And uh, I, I really wish Ukrainians to, um, to resist, to, to be brave. And I'm impressed by the Western resolve, which has demonstrated itself very clearly in uh, forms of sanctions, in forms of NATO's collective security decisions, and I'm sure will also demonstrate itself in the Western, um, in the cyber field. Thank Thanks. you very much. <clears throat> thank you. I'd like to thank uh, our guest speaker, Merla Megra, to our senior fellows, Paul Taylor and Chris Krumidis Courtney. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode four of this Frankly Speaking special on the Russian invasion of Ukraine.